0: Hello, everyone. Greetings from Jerusalem. Welcome to this special ICJ webinar. And thank you for taking the time to join us. This is a special session which uh, is organized together with the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation from The Hague, the Netherlands. Uh, we are going to speak today about the recent decision of the International Criminal Court, which could possibly open the way and allow possible war crimes probe against Israel? Even though the decision at hand is an answer by the pretrial chamber to a procedural question regarding jurisdiction, which was brought forward by the special prosecutor, uh, and this decision does not automatically imply the opening of an investigation against Israel, uh, nevertheless, we consider this decision outrageous, And we believe it calls for a reaction. And uh, this is why we decided to hold this seminar. And this is the first of a two-part webinars devoted to this matter. The second one will be held in exactly one week from now, on Thursday the 25th, at the same time, 5 PM Israel time. And today, we will explain the importance of the issue and provide some background information about the role and the powers of the International Criminal Court. And of course, we will hear Israel's assessment of the situation, how dangerous it is potentially to the state of Israel. And our intention is together to consider possible avenues of action. And based on the results of today's discussions, we're going to come up with some specific proposals Next week, so please be sure to join us again next Thursday. Today, we have three speakers, each will give a, about a 15 minute presentation, and then we will open the floor to questions and comments. Uh, we have several distinguished panelists among us, uh, they can be seen on the screen, and they will have the priority uh, in expressing the comments. And then, in addition, anyone from our international audience, and I I'd like to welcome you all. We have about 80 people who registered for this webinar. So all of you can ask a question by simply writing in the chat. Subject to time limitations, we'll try to give the floor to everyone. So without uh, much further ado, I'll give the floor to the first speaker who is my colleague at the International Christian Embassy, the Vice President and Senior Spokesman David Parsons. David is a lawyer by profession, has been following current events in Israel for decades. He is also a writer and a Middle East specialist, and also one of the co-authors of the U.S. Congress Jerusalem Embassy Act, which was passed way back in 1995. It provided for the relocation of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, which finally happened, as we saw, under the administration of President Trump. So, David, uh, please uh, start and explain to us what this decision and the uh, ramifications are all about.
1: Thank you, Moramir. I I want to give a little context and and background uh, to this recent ruling by the International Criminal Court. Uh, why uh, not only Israel, but all her uh, supporters around the world, so she as Christian supporters, should take this seriously uh, and then allow uh, the professionals who deal in international law every day, uh, Amit Huyman from the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Andrew Tucker from Think in The Hague uh, to um, uh, you know, uh, build on the, uh, background and knowledge we, we need to in order to fight this. But the Christian Embassy has been monitoring this over recent years. And looking at this ruling, we've decided to really come out. Uh, using our uh, international network and working with other friendly organizations, respected organizations, to oppose the uh, International Criminal Court's recent ruling to unlawfully extend its jurisdiction so that a war war crimes probe could be launched against Israel. We see this as a highly selective and biased move, which has stretched international law beyond recognition and even opened up the court to justifiable accusations of anti-Semitism, as was recently suggested by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in his response to the ruling. And we can first say that this ruling is absurd on its face. The jurisdiction of the international court, as we'll learn from uh, the experts here, uh, it is a court of last resort. It is somewhat consensual. And if you're not a member of the state, you're not supposed to, uh, and you also have serious proactive judicial mechanisms in your own country that deal with some of these crimes that are being mentioned, then you shouldn't be bothered by it. And Israel is not a member of the Rome statute that governs the the ICC. And it does have a very active uh, and respected judicial uh, system. Uh, including in the military, to deal with uh, some of the crimes they want to look at, or alleged crimes, should I say. In addition, the Palestinians do not qualify as a sovereign state under the Rome statute governing the court, and therefore the court had no legal standing or authority to uh, investigate and charge Israel with war crimes in the so-called occupied territories. And I think what we're witnessing is an overzealous chief prosecutor uh, bending international law to empower her uh, quest to indict Israelis on uh, invalid and unsustainable charges. Uh, We'll look at uh, this in just a minute. She's been working on this uh, for a while. Uh, It's uh, fortunate that she's going to have to step down in June. Her nine-year term is over. But when we look at this, the reason it's so biased, the ICC is overlooking daily war crimes because being committed by other brutal regimes, such as Iran and Syria, uh, against their own people. And instead, the ICC uh, is seeking to prosecute Jews for building balconies on their homes in East Jerusalem as if they were Nazi war criminals. This is why it's so outrageous and something that we really want to step up our actions against it. Uh, This ruling did not happen overnight. I believe it's part of a wider diplomatic, uh, Palestinian diplomatic agenda that has been building since the 2001 Durban conference to delegitimize and dismantle Israel. And in terms of the ICC, it has been building for five or six years uh, during the term of this chief prosecutor, Fatou uh, bin Souda. And uh, we'll look at this timeline in just a minute. Uh, But it does reflect the access and influence which uh, the Palestinians and their global allies have in United Nations organs. Uh, And sadly, uh, they have a large effective network of pro-Palestinian NGOs and human rights groups, which constantly pressure these UN bodies to take actions against Israel. And uh, I'd have to add with regret that this network is often funded in large part by other member states like the European Union puts a lot of funding into some of these groups that are constantly agitating against Israel. And the ICC ruling represents a significant advance on three Uh, key prongs of this Palestinian agenda since Durban, and I'll share my screen here uh, so that uh, we can look at these one by one very quickly. Okay, first, uh, they have been seeking to gain recognition of a Palestinian state outside of direct bilateral talks with Israel. We've seen this over and over again, going to the General Assembly for statehood. It requires approval by the Security Council, so they've tried there. That was blocked, uh, and but they've been able to get observer status in a lot of UN organs, even recognition as, a, uh, as having a state in some of these UN forums. And now, uh, according to this pre-trial ruling by this three-judge panel at the International Criminal Court, they do see that there is a Palestinian state in what they call the 1967 territories that would be Gaza, West Bank, and East Jerusalem. And therefore it's another significant advance in the Palestinian bid to bypass Israel in gaining uh, universal recognition of a Palestinian state without having to make the compromises with Israel needed for peace. Number two, they seek to undermine Israel's legitimacy and, in particular, its right of self-defense. This was one of the key agendas coming out of uh, Durban, the whole delegitimization, uh, demonization, and dismantling of Israel, as some called it, the three Ds. But we've seen uh, a specific fight to try and strip Israel of its right of self-defense, and uh, this move in the international criminal court would even allow the international community now to go back and look, especially at what happened in the Gaza conflict in 2014. It was the third uh, Gaza rocket war. I imagine they would wind up looking at all three Uh, of the rocket wars in, what, 2009, 11, and 14. Uh, Also the march, uh, uh, what they called the March of Return, which were really violent protests along the uh, uh, Israel-Gaza border in 2018. And uh, they're wanting to uh, identify, and try um, Israeli leaders, political leaders and military leaders uh, on charges of war crimes, crimes against humanity in these incidents. There's also a certain peg about Palestinian prisoners uh, that is involved in this. But once again, it's, it's part of an agenda that if Israel is not legitimate, then they do not have a right to defend themselves and this is all a battle of trying to strip Israel of the right to to uh, defend themselves against rockets, against terror tunnels, against terror attacks, against any means of attacking it. And third, uh, the Palestinians are seeking to uproot the Israeli communities in Judea Samaria, and we have to add East Jerusalem to this by discrediting them, delegitimizing them, and now even criminalizing settlement activity, and uh, of course, uh, there has been slow incremental progress in this and other UN organs. One of the most serious uh, milestones in this effort, uh, the dark milestone of the UN Security Council Resolution 2334 uh, in December of 2017, as the Obama administration was leaving office, they uh, not only refused to uh, cast a veto against this resolution, but uh, there's credible reports that they helped uh, arrange it. But this is a uh, very bitter resolution against Israel that uh, uh, decreed that the Israeli settlement uh, activity is a flagrant violation of international criminal law. And what the ICC, at least this chief prosecutor, is uh, trying to do. Is to turn settlement activity into a criminal activity. To actually say it's a war crime, uh, similar to what uh, you know. This is this is part of the uh, Geneva Conventions, were, which were enacted after the uh, Second World War and after the Holocaust. And they were these conventions on warfare. Were trying to aim at some of the atrocities. Uh, committed by the Nazis, particularly against the Jews, including the mass forced uh, transport or transfer of populations in and out of an occupied territory, and, uh, and this was declared a war crime, a crime against humanity, and uh, uh, afterwards, part of the Geneva Conventions, it's banned under it. And what they're trying to say is that the Jews moving into the biblical heartland of, uh, of the Jewish homeland here in Israel, and including in Jerusalem, uh, that uh, this is not only a violation of international law, it is a crime that if someone in East Jerusalem wants to build a balcony on their home, a Jewish person, they are committing a a war crime as if they were Hitler. Uh, And this is outrageous to us, and we want to really uh, come against it uh, with all the moral authority that we can. And when I speak about the timeline of uh, how we got to this point and how the Palestinians, how it's part of an agenda that's been with us for about two decades now. The Palestinians have been working on the international court uh, during this time. And they've had some good progress with this chief prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, during her term. And uh, they first managed to convince her in January of 2015 at the Palestinian request to open a preliminary examination of the situation in, quote, Palestine. And on uh, December 20th, 2019, there's a lot of other things on her plate as chief prosecutor. But they took their time. Uh, and, you know, were fed information. Uh, all sort of, uh, you know, the Palestinians were really able to lobby and, and get the information in. Vinsuda announced December of 2019 that there was a reasonable basis for opening an investigation into the situation in Palestine. Uh, January 20th, uh, this would have been about a year ago, uh, a pretrial panel of judges rejected uh, the chief prosecutor's initial request to uh, examine this issue uh, based on a, a technical issue. Her 110-page her brief was too long. <laughs> And they told her to whittle it down some Uh, within a couple months, April 30th, 2020. She had uh, resubmitted it as only 60 pages. They said, okay, and uh, have been proceeding from there. Just uh, 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 within a month, uh, the ICC um, had asked uh, the Palestinian Authority for a clarification. on PA President Mahmoud Abbas's statement that the Palestinian Authority would no longer be bound by or abide by the Oslo agreements. And they wanted to uh, clarify, of course, Abbas has said that many times, but this this time he really meant it. And the court uh, at this stage in the process said, can you clarify this for us? And you can see there's been this Uh, You know, Israel's been on the sideline watching all this, but a direct dialogue with the Palestinian Authority over this whole probe, this whole effort. Uh, And on June 5th, the the Palestinian Authority clarified that it regarded itself as absolved of all agreements with Israel, including Oslo. But it did not deem this to affect the case uh, that they were trying to build before the court. A few days later, June 8th. Uh, The Chief Prosecutor, Bensouda, agreed that Mahmoud Abbas's declaration uh, about not being bound by Oslo. had had no influence on the status of Palestine as a member of the Rome Statute, so they could proceed. And then on February 5th, just a couple of weeks ago, this pretrial panel of judges ruled that the ICC did, in fact, have jurisdictional authority over the territories, Uh, occupied in 67, including Gaza, West Bank, East Jerusalem. And this is where we are today. But you see that steady um, uh, dialogue between the ICC and the Palestinians that have led us to this moment. And today we're trying to get a little more knowledge back now, background, what are the weaknesses in the Palestinian case? How can we help? But it's It's really uh, outrageous for us that once again, the uh, uh, laws and norms, Geneva Conventions, other things set up after World War II to try and deal with some of the atrocities committed against the Jews uh, in the Holocaust that they are now being used as a a club against the Jewish state. And we wanna be clear that war crimes and crimes against humanity Uh, genocide, these are especially heinous violations of law and moral decency. In fact, they're so bad, so odious, that uh, there are no statute of limitations for uh, prosecuting them and thus we have seen in modern times uh, Nazi war criminals hunted down to their grave by uh, the Simon Wiesenthal Center and others for a decade. I lived in a neighborhood here in Jerusalem where I see um, uh, my friend uh, Ephraim Zuroff every day going to prayer at synagogue. And he's considered like the last uh, Nazi hunter, one of the last ones. And he's still 70-some years later trying to find some of these guys. But when you're talking about war crimes, crimes against humanity, they're so bad that there should be no limit on how long you can hunt these people down. But now the ICC would have us accept this perverse moral equivalence between what the Nazis did in forcefully transporting millions of Jews to their deaths and the voluntary return of Jews to the heart of their ancient biblical homeland, including Jerusalem. It's unacceptable in our view. And over uh, coming months, uh, the ICEJ is going to work with Israeli authorities, with other respected organizations, with our global uh, network and family of branches and activists around the world to oppose this and get uh, our nations to reject and rescind this outrageous decision. Thank you, and thank you to our guest panelists for joining
0: us today. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for this clear presentation. And uh, it, it is indeed a perversion, and it, it just uh, satisfies one clear pattern when it comes to anti Semitism in history. Whenever the international community considers something as the most heinous crime, and genocide would uh, fulfill this criterion, then inevitably, anti-Semites ascribe these most horrible crimes to the Jews. And this is what we are seeing uh, vis-a-vis the the only Jewish state applied by uh, bodies like the ICC. Uh, Before we give the floor to hear Israel's point of view, I would just uh, like to recognize a few panelists who are among us. I can see that Jacques Gauthier from Canada, respected lawyer, and uh, one that has uh, taken stand for Israel many times. It's great to have you, Doctor, and you will have opportunity to to join later with your comments. And I would also like to recognize Mr. Christoph Scharnweber from Germany, uh, our top uh, activist in the country of Germany, one of those seven countries which actually filed a clear statement to the pretrial chamber, which was later ignored, but is one of the state parties which shares the view which is being expressed today. So this brings me to our next speaker, uh, Mr. Amit Heumann. He is the Director of the International Law Department at the Office of the Legal Advisor at Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, it's uh, interesting, I read in his bio that he currently uh, serves as the legal advisor for the Israeli negotiation team for the Israeli-Lebanon maritime boundary negotiations. Quite an interesting topic in itself. And Mr. Heumann has also represented Israel at the Permanent Mission to the United States in New York. He is a lawyer by profession and uh, we would like to uh, hear from you, Mr. Amit, uh, what is Israel's take on the current situation and how possibly dangerous it could be to the, uh, to the uh, state of Israel? And uh, I also am reminded that uh, Mr. Amit Heumann appears courtesy to uh, a great friend of ours, uh, Sharon Rege from the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and uh, I'd like to greet you also, Sharon, again. Good to have you and thank you for your cooperation this, Mr. Amit Heumann, would you please take the floor?
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. And, uh, and it's really a great honour uh, to be with you here. Um, it really feels like even though we're talking through Zoom, it feels like being among close friends and, uh, and family. And we truly appreciate this uh, long-standing and strong friendship between us. Also on uh, what David just, the points he's mentioned before that, we know we can always count on you. And so, first of all, really to to pay our appreciation uh, to you. Um, this is really a, a very important topic that we want to talk to you. Uh, a one that has also a strategic uh, strategic uh, uh, implications uh, from the point of view from Israel. And therefore, I really uh, appreciate the interest that you find on it. Um, and I do want to share some of our thoughts and, uh, and how we view that and a bit to, to discuss the uh, recent uh, uh, decision by, uh, by, the, by the judges. Um, because I think uh, it's actually a topic that should interest anyone. Uh, everybody around the globe is supposed to be interested because it touches at the end on the core values of our society. We're talking here about an international criminal court Uh, that was really um, uh, visioned to deal with the worst mass atrocities that uh, humankind uh, can imagine. Uh, And Israel was between the early and strong supporters of establishing such a court, which today might surprise uh, uh, many. uh, But in fact, we were uh, very uh, strongly advocating for it. Also, given the very unique and tragic history we came through, uh, going back to the Holocaust, of course, and the Shoah, um, Israel is, of course, uh, in a very clear position that uh, no impunity can stand for, for those kinds of mass atrocities. Um, and this was really the vision uh, of the founders of the ICC. This was the mandate, uh, according to the Rome Statute, to deal with the worst mass atrocities that shock the conscience of humanity. Um, I think, uh, however, that the court has uh, very much deviated from uh, from this original vision. Um, Israel uh, did not join uh, the court uh, eventually because uh, there was a, a strong uh, fear that it would be used for politicization, that it would become another uh, political tool uh, in the international uh, arena um, to to fight against uh, Israel, and and I think unfortunately uh, today, us speaking here about this decision, uh, um, really materializes those concerns that we had uh, all along and and uh and, and and i think it's pretty much uh what has happened to the court as i will uh, a bit explain in uh in a moment um before diving into the decision uh, i think i just wanted to really uh, briefly uh, david has already mentioned it but to make uh, you know where we are actually here um and so The Palestinians have joined the ICC in 2015. It was a very controversial move. They have uh, threatened with this move for uh, a long time, uh, together, combined with other unilateral acts that they have taken in uh, international bodies, uh, like the UN uh, attempt to become a full member state. They, of course, have not succeeded so. uh, But then they uh, pursued another General Assembly resolution, which is easier uh, um, to... Uh, of course, to to gain the the numbers to to pass this resolution because of the automatic majority that uh, is against Israel in in the General Assembly. And so through the General Assembly, they have upgraded themselves to an uh, observer status of a non-member observer state within the UN. Um, and so, the last move was really to to join the ICC where they can try uh, and to criminalize uh, this conflict, right what is actually political conflict between Israel and the Palestinians and needs to be uh, um, uh, negotiated in direct bilateral negotiations what their attempt is constantly to try to de- uh, criminalize it. Um, and to to turn it into, at the end, a criminal trial against Israelis. So after a five-year-long preliminary examination by the prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, she has uh, decided uh, about a year ago, last December, uh, that uh, she believes there is reason to open, to proceed from the preliminary examination to the full investigation. Um, and she thinks there's a reasonable basis, uh, in fact, that war crimes have been uh, committed uh, in Gaza. I remind you that Israel, of course, Gaza is uh, today controlled by uh, Hamas, a terror organization, um, who, who's, who uh, you know, threaten and uh, and uh, fire rockets against Israeli populations. And in this uh, kind of a self-defense war, uh, the prosecutor has decided that war crimes have been. Uh, committed, but she has stopped there before opening an investigation and said that really this case raises complex uh, and novel uh, issues, mainly relating to the status of the Palestinian entity. Uh, and B, she doesn't, because she does not want to find herself at the end of a very long investigation, you know, that would uh, require a lot of uh, budget resources and, uh, and uh, human resources uh, to find herself at the end of that, to get a ruling by the court that, there, that she had, did not have jurisdiction to begin with. And so she has uh, asked for a pre-ruling from the judges uh to confirm and for to to confirm the position and she's asked for clarity uh due to those uh, complex uh, circumstances if indeed she enjoys jurisdiction and this decision was given uh friday uh two weeks ago uh, by a majority of two judges against one Uh, it took the judges over a year to get to a decision which is really a black or white decision is there jurisdiction or is there not jurisdiction so they have to grapple with it for over uh, year. It wasn't an unanimous decision, it was a decision two against one, uh, and actually the dissenting opinion is a very elaborated and important one. It stretches over 160 pages where he explains also why the prosecutor is wrong, why the majority decision is wrong, and why in fact the court uh, cannot enjoy jurisdiction in this, in this case. I will uh, touch maybe about two, uh, three main points. Um, that are uh, that, that come up in this uh, in this decision and that we deem highly problematic and I will also say that I think the, uh, the the decision is really not based on a very solid legal ground for example the the first issue of course that comes up it was already uh, uh, David has mentioned this uh, is the question are the Palestinians even a state? um can they uh, join a, a court that is only open for sovereign uh, states um and uh, the and here you would accept from a, expect from a criminal court to make a legal analysis according to international law whether the Palestinians uh, meet the threshold of a state and international law explains very clearly uh and sets very uh, clear criteria of of who can uh uh, of, of what amounts to the threshold of a state yes or no for example the question of effective control and uh, this is a key question but what the, the judges did instead of that they have just sidestepped this question completely and they have said well the fact that uh, the palestinians have uh, joined the uh, rome statute is enough for us to accept that as the reality we are dealing with basically um, just you know uh, kind of accepting what happened but not questioning it which they, what is exactly what they were supposed to do. Um, it is very important to note that, uh, as was mentioned, seven uh, states have joined those proceedings exactly on this point. Uh, Germany, Australia, Brazil, uh, Uganda and uh, Czech Republic and others. And uh, one of the main issues that came up in those uh, submissions, and this is unprecedented that seven states uh, come in a proceeding that does not relate to them in any way and make their position clear Um, and they have clearly stated that uh, that in their view, there is no uh, jurisdiction for the court on the Palestinians. Most of them have also said that they do not acknowledge a Palestinian state, but the court just dismissed this and deemed this basically as irrelevant and continued to the next question after he decided there is a state because they joined uh, the ICC. Let's discuss the scope of the territory. That's a huge question. What is the scope of the territory? And one, um, and one very important issue on this is, of course, uh, that we have argued uh, that I, we don't think that it is up for a criminal court to make the boundaries uh, in this conflict, right? This is again something that has to be negotiated between the sides. Um, what the court did in this, uh, at this point is, uh, is even more dubious uh, because it just uh, outsourced this question to the UN General Assembly. Uh, It uh, looked at uh, at the General Assembly resolution that was adopted uh, and said, well, I'm going to base myself on this. As I mentioned before, the automatic majority against Israel in the UN General Assembly, uh, I think is well known. Uh, This specific decision uh, is a non-binding political decision uh, that was not even adopted by consensus. There were many states opposing. Uh, abstaining and making very clear statements that they do not see this decision as giving any uh, statehood, uh, but more a technical resolution. And this is also a point where the minority judge is really uh, uh, making a very strong point um, that in his words, no acrobatics with what they try to do uh, uh, with the with the ICC statute uh, um, can unmask the, the really legal flaws that are in uh, in this decision. And then the third point relates uh, to the Oslo codes. The Oslo codes are uh, one are the main agreement that exists as of today between Israel and the Palestinians. And uh, while where they have, while if they have transferred a lot of responsibilities and powers to the Palestinian Authority, they have a very strong and clear. Uh, um, uh, um, they have a very clear um, uh, statement that criminal jurisdiction about Israelis is not being transferred. This is something that stays fully and completely within Israel uh, and was not transferred in any way to the Palestinians. And this, of course, raises the question how um, some, uh, a non-sovereign state, which does not have the criminal jurisdiction over Israelis, can delegate this to the criminal court. Because at the end, the criminal court is based on delegation of jurisdiction by its member states, it doesn't have its own jurisdiction. Only what a member state, when a member state decides to pass on this uh, jurisdiction, and here uh, it's something that they could not pass on because they never had it. But uh, the minor, the uh, the judges, what they what they do, they just say mm, the Oslo courts they're not really relevant at this stage, and they throw it back in the future and say maybe in the future this is something that that could be raised. Um, all that together, I think, uh, leave uh, really strong legal holes in the decision uh, and uh, do not give her this clarity that we think uh, she actually has asked for. Now, uh, the ball is back in the hands of the prosecutor. Um and I will just say, you know, we really think that this uh, uh, decision to to continue and uh, open an investigation already, this decision by the court, it really plays into the hand of the extremists and whoever do not want to see this change that we are witnessing in past months in, uh, in the Middle East of peace agreements and normalization agreements it really plays into the hands of those who oppose it and I think it comes as no surprise that uh, Hamas were between the first ones uh, to really embrace this decision uh, and, and praise the importance of it. Um, we think uh, that there are really good reasons not to continue. Uh, we hope that uh, the prosecutor will, will carefully analyze them and take them into account, um, but of course we we will be ready uh, to defend uh, every Israeli citizen in case needed. But we truly hope that this will not be the case. So I, I think I'll, I'll stop here. And, uh, and I know that also Andrew is uh, to speak after me. Andrew, of course, uh, is not only a new colleague, he is also they have submitted a uh, Amicus Curie to the court. So he's very familiar with the case. Uh, and really also very clear positions and important positions that he has made uh, the court here. So also an opportunity to thank Andrew and his organization for all their work on this.
0: Thank you, Amit, for this very clear uh, enumeration of all the the legal flaws and indeed the acrobatics that is found in the majority decision. And uh, we won't lose from sight our main intention to see what could be done against it by different means today. So we'll come to that later, but now I would ask the last speaker, Mr. Andrew Tucker, who is a lawyer, originally from Australia, he now lives in the Netherlands. He is an attorney specializing in international law and a respected Christian advocate for Israel. He uh, uh, speaks on behalf of a a Christian think tank called Think, uh, which is an abbreviation for the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation. It is an organization dedicated to the promotion of the rule of law in international relations, And uh, their focus is clearly the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. As has been said, Andrew is very well uh, uh, informed about the whole case. So I would ask you, Andrew, to take the floor and give us your insights.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much, Moimir. Thank you, David. Thank you, Amit. And... uh... for for taking initiative to organise this uh, event and thank everybody for for participating. I think it is extremely important uh, and very valuable that those of you in different countries around the world really grapple with with what is going on here. Um, I fully agree with the previous speakers that this is a fundamentally important decision. Uh, We've seen a lot of things over the last couple of decades uh, and there 's always those critical points in history aren 't there where, where major decisions are taken and I believe uh, this is one of them um, i 'd like to just take a, a little bit of a step back if if you like and think about some of the bigger issues that are that are raised by the decision. Uh, I think David and Amit have explained extremely well what was decided, and I think the key legal uh, issues that are raised um, First of all, you know, I think the fact that this took a year for the courts to come out with this ruling uh, is is in itself significant. Uh, and as Amit mentioned, it's a ruling by two of the three judges. Um, and there's a very significant and substantive minority opinion being issued by the Hungarian judge, Peter Kovács, uh, which uh, is, raises a whole bunch of issues. And I think many of them offer, uh, interesting not only lines of argument, but I think fundamental positions which we can use later as we think about um, how to raise arguments about this and to whom can we raise those arguments um, there, there are three i think levels at which we can sort of think about this decision, uh, and i 'll touch on a number of them. Uh, one is the you know, the very technical legal analysis of the decision. Was it a right or was it wrong? Did they get the analysis of Article 12.3 of the Rome Statute right? We can have arguments about that. I think they got it fundamentally wrong um, by, by deciding that when the Rome Statute talks about a state, it simply means a state party. And in their view, any entity that accedes to the Rome statute becomes a state party and therefore is a state in the terms of the statute. I think there's an illogical reasoning there uh, at a technical level. Secondly, there's a more strategic level uh, to this decision, uh, which I think is the level we probably need to think about. And there's also some very fundamental conceptual issues. Now, I've got five points just to touch on and I think will help us uh, perhaps a little bit. First of all, this whole issue of of statehoods. Now, really what you have, and I think you see it it very much in the majority uh, as opposed to the minority view, the majority is a French judge and an African judge. Um, taking a view about uh, statehood, they say, we don't need to look at the issue of international law. We simply decide that if the General Assembly has decided this is a a state, then that's good enough for us. And to be honest, I can understand this line of reasoning. If I were in the court, uh, I don't think I would want the court to be getting into this hot potato of whether this thing called Palestine is or is not a state. The court was confronted with, uh, I think, over 50 by leading international So there This shouldn't
0: have I'm afraid we have some problems with the connection. Let's hope that Andrew comes back soon. His line is not working at the moment. Okay, so while we're waiting for for Andrew to come back, hopefully, uh, I think it's a good opportunity to open our discussion and then we'll go back to his presentation when he's on. Uh, Is there anyone from our panelists uh, who already would like to make a comment or raise a question?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, we I, I hope we get uh, Andrew back. He's right there in the Hague, and he's opened uh, with other colleagues uh, and a very important ishi- initiative there with uh, Think to try and uh, you know become a real asset for the pro-Israel Christian community worldwide in lawfare, all the the lawfare that comes against Israel. But uh, I meet uh, at the Foreign Ministry. Uh, This question of why would Hamas be so accepting of this probe when they are also possibly a target of it? What what is uh, your thinking on that?
2: Um, So so I think it it relates really to the bigger picture of of what uh, is trying to be reached through going to the ICC. And uh, and I think the, uh, the aim here, as I've mentioned before, is to try and to criminalize what is a, p- a political uh, uh, conflict and to try and get uh, Israelis in front of a criminal trial, in front of sitting with them in direct negotiations. And I think this plays really into the hand of extremists because like uh, Hamas uh, and others, because, unfortunately, uh, opening such an investigation uh, clearly would cause a, uh, a huge conflict between the sides. Um, and I think that is, that is really something that the court has also uh, that needs to be kept, kept be reminding to the court, that there is really an attempt to drag him here into a political conflict and turn it into a political tool Uh, And and I think that explains uh, also uh, why they were between the first to embrace it. I don't think you need a criminal uh, court to tell Hamas that they're a terrorist organization, right? They're already designated as a terrorist organization uh, in uh, in most, uh, in in many countries. So I think uh, they have a different uh, interest here And, uh, and that's unfortunate if the court would actually play into their hands. Yes, right, Andrew,
0: I think that we uh, we lost you, but I yeah. see you're back. So we give the floor back to you and please continue with uh, your presentation.
3: Okay, thank you so much. I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, so the point I'm making is actually about this these, these mindsets. And the, this point I think we need to stress is w- we have two very fundamental worldviews going on here. There, there's the worldview, of the international criminal arena that um, and and we see this in the judgment where the court says the purpose of the rome statute is to end impunity for international crimes if we think there's a crime out there then we will interpret the statute in such a way that we can tackle that crime the prosecutor thinks there are crimes being committed by israelis and palestinians therefore um, the court says we interpret the statute in such a way that we we give ourselves jurisdiction. And I think this reflects this very dominant uh, line of thinking in international legal world uh, of the international criminal lawyers and international criminal law and human rights law has become the fundamental paradigm today through which uh, the lens through which people look at the world. And unfortunately, they see Israel as being the perpetrator and the Palestinians as the victim. Um, And and this is the most difficult paradigm we have, I think, to change, to bring in the sense that the world is not made up of perpetrators and victims. This is a complex dispute. The Middle East is complex. This dispute is complex. And it's about two peoples uh, having different perspectives Fighting or arguing about uh, a piece of land and authority and sovereignty and so forth, um, so these two worldviews I think uh, are problematic, um, and one of the things that I think that is important to be argued is the case that the minority judge kovacs does. He says sovereignty is important, statehood is important, and the responsibility of states not only. Uh, their accountability, but also the responsibility of states, is important. And that, that is the reason that he goes right into the question of whether or not Palestine is a state or not. That leads to my second point, is that the court uh, really simply ignores the position of Israel. It says this is just a dispute between Israel and the Palestinians about borders, And their reasoning is that our decision does not affect that dispute because we're not making a decision about borders. Therefore, we're not interfering with the sovereignty of Israel. Now, I think that's fundamentally wrong because uh, necessarily this decision, uh, if not directly, then indirectly, it's going to have a normative influence and effect on people. They will see... Uh, And there will be confirmed in their perspective that Israel's uh, legitimacy is limited to the so-called 1967 lines, uh, which for many reasons is fundamentally uh, wrong. So at that level, I think the court uh, has got this uh, wrong. And there's a a real issue here about undermining Israel's right to territorial uh, sovereignty, its right to equality uh, in the international legal order. Uh, I think thirdly, perhaps most fundamentally, is the question about how we look at the territories. Uh, And and I believe this is the the core as well of of this uh, decision. It's about how we frame the, the way we look at the territories. And again, the court sees these territories, everything outside the green line as effectively belonging to the Palestinians. Uh, They say Palestine may not be a state fully, according to international law. Nevertheless, uh, implicitly, the Palestinians have a right to statehood over all of those uh, territories. Um, Now, this, I I think, is also a fundamentally incorrect uh, framing of the issues. Unfortunately, it is the majority view out there in the international legal world. Uh, Most international lawyers, and we saw it when the annexation issue uh, flared up in the middle of last year, you know, uh, hundreds of prominent international lawyers putting up their hand and saying Israel has no rights to sovereignty outside uh, outside the Green Line. Um, Now, the judge Kovach, the minority judge, uh, takes a different view, and he says, this is the reason why he says the Oslo agreements are so important, because they reflect the fact that these are disputed territories. Uh, Israel's sovereignty and the sovereignty of the territories has not been determined. No international tribunal, not even the International Court of Justice, has made a determination about where sovereignty lies this is the view that Israel has put and tried to put strongly, and I believe other states need to confirm, that, that sovereignty is still to be determined over these territories. And the reason the Oslo Accords are so important, one of the reasons, is that it creates a process for that fundamental issue, amongst others, uh, to be determined. And the only way it can be determined is through the negotiating process of uh, the parties. Um, which leads to, I think, an issue about negotiations. Um, I think a lot of work needs to be done still to explain why negotiations are so important and necessary, also legally speaking. I don't believe this has necessarily been uh, explained or understood well enough. Israel's position and in fact, the international community's position is that the only way that Palestinian statehood can be achieved is through negotiations. Now, if if that's if that's true, if negotiations are required under international law, then that means that both parties, Israel and the Palestinians, need to be respected in their positions and not be and, and parameters not imposed upon them, which is effectively what this kind of decision is doing. So uh, I believe going forward, uh, one of the discussions that needs to be had is about why negotiation is important. And one of the reasons it is important is because sovereignty uh, has not been determined, um, at least as far as the West Bank is concerned, outside Jerusalem. Let me move just to to the point then of settlements. And this raises the issue of Jerusalem as well. Um, There are two kinds of war crimes that the prosecutor believes uh, that have been committed. One of the war crimes related to the Gaza conflicts since 2014. uh, The court potentially has um, uh, the right to investigate those crimes by Israelis and, according to the prosecutor, Hamas leaders as well. Uh, The other set of crimes relates to settlements, of so-called settlements. Uh, She believes that these settlements are illegal, or at least Israeli policy to enable the settlements to be created is a war crime. Uh, The fact that she believes that is used by the court to justify granting itself jurisdiction. Um, Now, we have to realise settlements um, is one of the provisions of the Rome Statute. It comes from the Fourth Geneva Convention, Uh, It's the crime of deporting or transferring uh, the population of the occupying power into the occupied territories. This provision has never been the subject of any proceedings anywhere in the world. The court is getting itself into an area here, uh, which is not only legally but factually extremely complicated, has never been the subject of international proceedings. But I believe this is really what the prosecutor uh, wants to get her hands onto and which she sees as being perhaps even the most fundamental war crime in her view. Um, There is a distinction to be made between Jerusalem, or so-called East Jerusalem, and the West Bank, the reason being that Israel has clearly asserted its sovereignty over East Jerusalem since 1967. The international community has never accepted that. Um, But Israel has a much stronger position there to say that that it has sovereignty over East Jerusalem. I think that needs to be argued and needs to be articulated um, because it has control and it is clearly through its application of Israeli law and jurisdiction to East Jerusalem, asserted its sovereign rights. The West Bank is more complicated because Israel has not taken that position. Therefore, it is going to be more difficult for Israel or others to claim Uh, that these are not uh, occupied territories or that the settlements are somehow uh, illegal. The court will have to, if it moves down this line, uh, explain the elements of the crime, which I say are legally complex, and there will be an enormous factual issues about proving that specific settlements have involved deporting or transporting, uh, transferring... Israeli civilians into the territories. As we know, uh, all the Israelis living there are doing so voluntarily. They've not been forced by the State of Israel or anybody else to, to live there. So there's a whole bunch of issues there, which I think the court uh, is going to have difficulties. With uh, leads me to my final point. That is really going forward. Um, the question now is what will prosecutor do we have a new prosecutor who will come in in June it's the British uh, international criminal lawyer Karim Khan he um, is a, is a leading light in international criminal law he has his own persona he has his own view of things he will take a fresh look at this one of the reasons one of the issues that will be discussed is whether this decision means that the prosecutor is obliged to proceed with an investigation. Uh, I don't believe so. I think this prosecutor will have the discretion to decide. The court is under enormous pressure. Again, an important point, I think, to realize the court has failed fundamentally in its mandate over the last 20 years. Uh, Many states are dissatisfied with the courts. The state's parties have subjected it to a review. So this new prosecutor will be under a lot of pressure to settle priorities. And I think the argument needs to be made that this, certainly the settlement issue, um, is not an area that the court should be getting itself into. There are much more fundamentally uh, problematic war crimes that the court should be dealing with. My final point is, I think the state parties. uh, One of the points the court made was it's the state parties who accepted Palestine into the UN as a non-member state. It's the uh, ICC state parties which accepted its accession to the ICC. And there's an implicit criticism of the state parties. I think it's a justified one that really states are not If they don't believe Palestine is a state, then they shouldn't be allowing Palestine to be getting to this position. And therefore, I think a discussion needs to be had within the Assembly of State Parties. Uh, And as we've seen, a number of states have already said they're not happy with what is happening, that pressure is put on the prosecutor and potentially even the legal process from within the Assembly of State Parties to challenge the decision. So this is just the beginning, I think, of a very long road. And I think there are many opportunities for challenging what is a very problematic decision. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we already have a few uh, panelists who would like to add the comments. Uh, to give the floor to Christine Williams. I believe she's from Canada. Would you please introduce yourself and uh, make your presentation?
4: Thank you so much, Mojmir. First of all, I'd like to say that it's an absolute privilege to listen to our three speakers. There are a couple of points I'd like to make and embedded in those points are questions that I'd like to hear the feedback on the the speakers. The first point is the fact that um, Bensouda, which is good news, she's actually being replaced soon. Um, there is a new fellow that was elected named Karim Khan, and he will be replacing her as key prosecutor, as the chief prosecutor, and he comes in in June. Now, what is particularly interesting about this man is that he's from Britain. So Britain is traditionally an ally of America and, and, and Israel. And in the past, he's actually criticized the, um, the ICC prosecutor's office for relying sometimes on shaky or weaker evidence and bringing up what Amit said earlier about the concerns in the first place of why um, Israel had concerns joining the ICC, well, they were certainly made manifest. And in fact, the um, the group, the state parties to the Rome Statute, the founding treaty, established something called the Independent Expert Review that was rather critical of the ICC, reporting that there was a lack of focus, inefficiencies, and asserted also that it was plagued by bullying, sexual harassment, plus. There was a culture of fear and mistrust at the court. So when we put those things together, I'm wondering what the feedback might be from the three of you on how this might be impacting going forward, particularly considering that Khan has had so many criticisms and um, he may not go through with this. So I was wondering what your feedback might be first of all on those.
0: So that was a question to our Speakers would like to answer first.
1: I think Amit should answer first, uh, just on the question of Israel's comfort level with this new chief prosecutor, and do they think it will make a difference?
2: Thanks, and thank you for the question. I will... Look, we don't know. Every every prosecutor is independent. We don't know. But I definitely agree that there is a very strong call for reform on the court, also from this uh, independent expert review that you have mentioned, but also coming from a lot of key member states of this court that understand that at the end, the the budget of this uh, organization is limited. And you have to really prioritize where you invest, uh, because taking one case means you might not take another case. And therefore, I really think it's also not in the interest of the court to go into such a controversial case. Um, and uh, we really think they should di- prioritize uh, what they do in a, in a different manner.
4: Now, Amit, just one more point, um, and I know there are other people, but I am really... Um, intrigued or curious to find out. Should this investigation go ahead? What will that translate to for Israel? I mean, the court is asking to be able to investigate. How will that be practical considering they have no jurisdiction? And I don't even know where they're going to start, especially considering what happened in 2018 when the gas, the people that were killed were actually, most of them were Hamas to begin with. How do they intend to investigate? And what do you foresee Israel doing to even um, either stimmy or facilitate such an investigation?
2: Um, (laughs) Thanks, Um, I I will say uh, it's it's a good question as well. Um, The the, the important issue is, first of all, really to remember what was already said there, and I I stressed it myself, we're not there at an investigation yet. The decision is only about jurisdiction of the court, um, and it's now uh, back in the hands of the prosecutor. Um, there, she's at the end of her term. There's a new prosecutor, so uh, I think we should uh, wait and uh, and see and hope that uh, the right decision will be made on that. Having said that, uh, you know, at the end, uh, Israel is a democracy. We have an effective uh, and strong legal system. Um, we we're not uh, we know how to investigate ourselves if uh, if necessary and where necessary. Um, so I think that answers it. Yeah. Thank you,
0: Christine. Thank you, Amit. Um, Christoph Scharnweber from Germany would like to make a point. Christoph.
5: Thank you very much also for organizing this meeting. I have a question concerning the role of the countries that now express that they do not agree like uh, Germany did. I mean the German uh, foreign policy originally declared that we fully trust the court, what will be done. Um, Now they changed. We are very happy about this. They say, uh, we do not agree. So this is really a miracle. And uh, the question is, uh, if now these so-called friends of courts, amicus curiae, are asked about their opinion. Is this just something very polite? Everybody can express something, but things will go on as the court wants it. Or does it really has um, an influence and the second question is if the chief prosecutor is changing in June um, then uh, can be done something pragmatically so that the whole trial and the the beginning of the trial can be postponed I mean whoever is a lawyer here in this uh, meeting understands that you can do a lot of things sometimes so that uh, the trial does not start, and a lot of uh, things are discussed uh, before. So uh, what would be a, a pragmatic solution so that this trial against Israeli soldiers cannot start? I mean, we all can agree that we do not like what the ICC does, but this doesn't change a lot. So what can be really done, and what can our countries done, or is there something we can do in order to lobby in our countries uh, for that case.
0: Thank you, Krista. Very relevant. Uh, I would field the question to Andrew. Probably. Thank you.
3: Uh, thank yeah. you. A very, very good question. The, the first question about the, the friends of the court. Um, the, uh, when the court invited or oh, opened up for, for uh, people to make submissions, they gave the opportunity to states and to, to others. Now. Um, It was, as Amit says, uh, quite remarkable that seven states made a submission um, and they are all also uh, state parties. So they have a very different position. I think uh, this is really where the focus should be now. The academics uh, or the NGOs that made submissions, the court has really basically ignored them. Uh, Well, they haven't ignored them. They've they've adopted the view of, of half of them. And and they've failed to fundamentally engage with the with the arguments of the others, which were good arguments, they were some sub, substantive arguments, but the court really has ignored them. And there's no process for them now to get back involved in the decision. So therefore I think the opportunity is for the state parties like Germany, like Austria, Hungary, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, also uh, Australia, uh, Brazil, Uganda. These are the states um, which I think need to be lobbied, I think, uh, in a positive sense. And they need to be encouraged to be taking a a proactive view and and getting other states around them to, I think, challenge uh, the decision and uh, convince the new prosecutor. um, Because as has been said, uh, he has to establish the new priorities uh, and, and to convince him that certainly going down this uh, this route is not going to be a, a helpful way of, of proceeding.
0: Thank you, Andrew. So uh, if I may just uh, repeat that, we do have, or the, the state parties do have a legal way that they can do, and uh, we have representatives in those countries, so we can do well to to lobby them and to make our voices uh, heard. Uh, then uh, we also have probably a- another way to, to make our uh, voices heard uh, in a more general sense. And uh, I have heard a lot of uh, questions here about uh, what can we do to to educate uh, our people and to give them a possibility to, uh, to join a campaign or something. So, this is uh, one of the things that we are considering. We'll come uh, later to it, and this is something that uh, we can invite all of you to take part in. Uh, before doing so, I have an, uh, another question uh, from our Finnish representative, Yani Salopangas. Yani, would you please
6: ask a question? Yes, thank you so much uh, for the panelists. It's been very informative, also for a lot of people who are not very aware. On, on, the, on the basics of this issue. I just have a question um, regarding the, the interpretation of the international law and the, the boundaries of the international law because, as I understand right now, the ICC is uh, stretching its uh, jurisdiction over, um, over areas that actually has no jurisdiction over. Um, because looking at um, the situation, for example, in Cyprus and Turkey, uh, Cyprus is a member of the ICC, and Turkey is not a member state. So, looking at this case, uh, I would say that the ICC has uh, a, a much stronger, sca- a much uh, stronger case to actually rule against Turkey and, and put people of the Turkish regime under uh, international uh, law. So, my question is: What does this do actually? to the value of international law when the actual entity who is supposed to be working inside of the the international law is not really valuing the law that they're supposed to be representing.
0: A question on international law. I think I would ask Andrew again, uh, being an expert in that area.
3: Sorry, it's a very good question. Thank you. Uh, the problem is international law is uh, in a sense what 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 do you make of it. Uh, a lot of people are actually saying this is actually a very good development of international law. Uh, the international community should be accepting uh, less than state parties. There's a very strong line of thinking out there that um, we should get away from sovereign states and we should be opening up the international community to entities like Palestine, which are less than states. So they would see this as being an affirmation of international law. So really, it's a discussion between two different views of, of international law. And I think our job is to you know, articulate the, the reasons why states are important and why uh, a traditional conservative view of statehood is, is important, and that it, underlies the ICC, which has no power, no jurisdiction, no authority to do anything except that states give to it. Uh, and that's an argument that needs to be um, made very strongly. So I agree there's a very big difference between the Cyprus case and this case, for the very reason Palestine here is you know, universally understood not to be a state, yet it aspires to be a state. Everybody wants it to be a state. Apparently, a lot of people do, but it's not one yet, and uh, we, we need to uh, articulate why that's important. Mormir.
1: <laughs> I would, um, I would add. There, there's an old adage in the legal profession that uh, bad cases make bad law, and I think this has been a truth. Uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for decades that the way uh, the anti-Israel elements out there have tried to bend and shape and manipulate international law to put Israel in the DACA time after time after time, it's actually undermined uh, universal human rights laws, universal criminal laws and all of these things in a way that is very unfortunate for the whole world community.
7: Yeah. May I add one more uh, point? Sure. I think that uh, the answer is is, is actually simple uh, to this question because this decision of the court distorts completely distorts international law and um, as was said by Andrew, the court can judge only country states that are member of the uh, Rome convention and um Israel is not a party to the ICC, and it has not consented uh, to its jurisdiction. Only sovereign states can delegate jurisdiction to this court, and uh, there is no Palestinian state. And thus, with this ruling, this court becomes a political tool and not any form of institution that makes justice. And I want to add one more thing and to say that um, Last week, um, in our synagogues, we read in the Torah the Torah portion of um, Mishpatim. It's called it's Exodus twenty one to twenty four, and this uh, this Torah portion begins with the words of God that were directed to Moses. These are the Mishpatim. These are the laws that you shall set before them, and basically, this is the uh, continuation of the Ten Commandments. And when you look at the uh, operation of this court, you see that justice and and this, you know, the the ruling of this court um, are completely apart. There's no justice. It is only a political tool and thus it completely distorts international law. One more thing that has to be said again is that this court was established in order to confront mass atrocities that really deeply, deeply shock the conscience of the entire humanity. And it was not, uh, it was not established in order to pursue uh, democratic states that are completely committed to the rule of law. So this is my two cents. Excellent,
0: Excellent Sharon. Um, Well, we are coming to a close of our session, and I think there's a universal agreement among us um, uh, that uh, the decision of the law of of the ICC is deeply flawed. Um, Now the question needs to be said, what can we do about it? What can we do? We are here representing um, a global network of activists. Some of our are lawyers, some of us are lawyers, some of us are uh, people who have access to politicians. So what courses of action uh, can be considered uh, in order to try and prevent, first of all, the investigation? Or what kind of influence can the public have, in fact, uh, or through the member states? What is the possibility that uh, we could possibly do? Anyone?
4: I think the time has. May I? I think the time has come where we need to really up the game when it comes to the public relations, because Israel has been standing on international law since 1948, and people aren't listening. Too many people aren't listening. Um, when you look at the reputation of these organizations, like the United <clears throat> Nations, like the International Court, um, it, it's deplorable. And perhaps it's time for each one of us that's here to start talking to, ministering, um, being able to get out the message to our our, our sphere of influence and taking it very seriously and taking it to the next level to educate people so that Israel is given a fair shake when it comes to um, information, um, public relations, the, the the slanderous the slander against israel is why we're here today the other side the entire palestinian jihad they're not standing on anything solid And the Palestinian Authority keeps boasting, even on PATV, for children to see that the Palestinian culture is one of martyrdom. And the Israel needs to become, I think, people, all of us, more engaged in that kind of an activism when it comes to truth, recognizing that it's Israel, but it's also all democratic nations, because Israel is really the only democracy in the Middle East.
8: Thank you. Moimir, can I make a suggestion, Moimir? Yes, please. Um, As you know, our our turf is the international law. But what is now an urgent matter, and it has been uh, said by several speakers, there may be a window of opportunity where we, as individuals living in the democracies we live in, have access to the representatives in Parliament and in the government be it opposition or be it in the coalition, but we should talk to our representatives in the parliaments and say, what the ICC is doing is not according to its original charter. This is not what why it was established. And now it's moving, taking political decisions and going in the wrong direction. And uh, we don't have to be uh, emotional about it, but it is not in the interest of our democracies, and the ICC itself if it continues on this path. So maybe next week when we have the next uh, edition of the conference, we can phrase some actions that will enable the audience to take action in their countries.
0: Yes, Peter, exactly. I believe that uh, there are basically two avenues which uh, seem to be available to us. One is to present our elected officials, our governments with uh, clear-cut arguments. This is where our lawyers can help us formulate and give argumentation uh, with which we can you know, address these people and uh, try uh, to convince them to exert their influence within their sphere uh, of influence towards the ICC. And the other thing that I can see, uh, there is a widespread call for education. And this is, I believe the role of the ICJ with our global network of activists. And uh, we have uh, already considered uh, perhaps starting a global petition, which uh, would activate people. And in the wake of that petition, we would also provide some basic information which could be shared and with which people could educate their communities, their churches, leaders and so forth. So this seems to be the two, uh, two paths that we can take simultaneously uh, using the body of arguments in these two way political and uh, let's say social or, or global. And uh, we are going to do our homework and uh, bring uh, some concrete proposals to you next week. So stay tuned uh, with us. And also you can talk to your friends and uh, people who could make a difference in this matter and invite them to join us next week. I will give the final floor to David if he would like to wrap up the discussion today.
1: Yes, we wanna invite everyone to come back uh, during this same time slot next Thursday for part two of this webinar series on the ICC ruling where we're going to talk about uh, what we can do and within our own countries, and uh, together as a worldwide movement, uh, t- uh, teaming up with other organizations. We have a whole new set of panelists uh, to do this, but uh, this was an educational background, context, very good uh, presentations by, uh, by the fellow panelists. We want to thank you all again. And next week, we're going to talk about uh, call to action, what we can be doing and, uh, and trying and to have some materials ready at that time for people to, to equip them and, and mobilize them in this battle. I, it, it's a case of the enemy isn't sleeping and we, we have to, uh, to uh, stay at the wheel ourselves, uh, our hands to the, um, to the plow, but we have a, a God who ne- neither slumbers nor sleep who watches over Israel. So we don't have to fret about it, but we have to do our moral duty towards Israel and the Jewish people and state in defending them from things that uh, Christians used to do to them and that are you know, now considered atrocities and, and criminal offenses. And we know Israel does not belong in that category now. Okay?
0: Yes. Thank you, David. Uh, once again, thank you all our panelists, uh, Amit, Andrew, and David. Thank you for to all of you who participated actively. Thank you. We had almost 128 participants at the height of the session. Uh, just for your information, it has been recorded. It will be available on YouTube and I believe also on Facebook. So you have this recording also available to you later on. And uh, again, uh, if you have any particular Uh, specific points, uh, you can send it to us in the meantime. And uh, next week on Thursday, we're going to present uh, some specific proposals. Hopefully we can move the thing forward uh, uh, in our common effort. So thank you very much. God bless you. See you next week.